0: take a couple of minutes and wanted to make sure the Kid Nation was in here too. So we met last Sunday, last Sunday evening, and had a, a short conversation about all the ways that God has been walking with us over the last couple of years and um, began to really look forward to see how God has been leading us. And realizing that um, our name, Grace Church, uh, is really kind of difficult to distinguish from other congregations, that there's people who can see our church building that, A, don't know that we're a church, and B, when they hear that we're Grace Church, think that we're a different congregation on the other side of town. Um, So the name has not been super helpful for us as an organization, but beyond that, it's not helpful for us to have uh, uh, the right kind of platform to have conversations with our neighbors, and so um, we decided that uh, as a team, that it was best to, to change our name. And we prayed through all of the different options, literally all the different options. Some of them were very bad. Most of the bad ones were mine. Um, and we came to uh, consensus that going forward, um, we would like to be referred to as Neighborhood Church. Um, so you are gonna to begin to see that name around. We're gonna to begin to use that name. Um, and it'll be a slow, a slow takeover. You'll see things change online because those are the easiest things. Just upload a different picture. Um, but obviously we've got some paint on the walls and signs and stuff like that. So that'll, that'll change over time. Um, and really, uh, yeah, I just wanted to share that with you. If you haven't heard that news yet, it's something that we're really excited about. I'm excited about how the, the yeah, I'm excited about how the team has worked together. Um, and the team has worked together so well that the other congregations that we're connected with uh, um, in Lakeland said, wow, like, we really like that identity. We like that name. And they're at a place where they're um, starting a restarting a, a church. Um, there's literally, like, five people meeting for Bible study on Sunday mornings. And they're just trying to figure out what to do next. And they decided they wanted to adopt it, too. So we will be Neighborhood Church Ocala um, and there will also be a neighborhood church in Lakeland as well. Um, so we've got kind of a, a lime green color. That'll be our, our color. And they're going to take a little bit of a, of a darker green color there. So I'm excited about that, um, that we've done, like we've done work that other people like so much that they want to steal it from us. So that's exciting. Um, so yeah, I just want to share that. I wanted to make sure Kid Nation was here to hear that briefly. Um, but you guys can go back with, um, with uncle Ryan now. Yeah. Um, I am excited to be able to, to be sharing that news, like I, I've been working on that project for two years and um, we've kind of had the name for about a year and so I'm glad to begin to use it, like it's it's exciting. <laughs> um, we're uh, in a series that we've called Glory Through Anguish, and we started this series on Easter. And on Easter morning is the time where the church pauses to remember uh, the most important event in Christian history, which is the resurrection of Jesus. We, we celebrate Easter um, because of, uh, of the resurrection. And the, the, I don't know that everybody else who celebrates Easter, your neighbors, whether they're connected with a Christian church or not, I don't know if they know that that's why we celebrate Easter, but that's, that's what it's for. So we started talking about the resurrection, and that's an incredible story of, of, of life and living and, and, and hope. And excitement and um, you know, wiping away tears from, from every eye. And, and people who were, are grieving are now like excited and rejoicing. And so there's this glory of resurrection. But as we started with that on Easter Sunday, we began to ask the question of how did we get there? How did we get to this moment of glory and excitement and victory? Well, we've seen as we took a step back and talked about the crucifixion two weeks ago, and we took a step back and looked at the trial, the legal proceedings that put Jesus on the cross, that that moment of glory came through great anguish. We're going to take another step back and ask the question of how did Jesus even get into the courtroom? Like, what were the things that happened that that put him in that place where he could suffer such an unjust trial? Um, and so that's, that's what we're going to be looking at this morning, and unfortunately, it has a lot to do with his really close friends um, and betrayal. But as we are reflecting on that, we're reminded that all of our past, all of our present, and all of our future depend upon Jesus' resurrection. So as we look and take a, a, a glimpse behind, not behind the curtain, but we eclipse a, a glimpse into the shadows and the darkness of how humans deal with one another. Um, we do that with the light of resurrection on our shoulder and shining through our hearts. So, um, Would you pause together and, and pray with me as we begin? Um, it's our, our habit to pray together the disciples' prayer. Um, that is a model of prayer that Jesus left for us. There's no, no magic words here. Um, but the attitudes that are contained within, we'll see actually today, the attitudes contained within... Um, shape our conversations with God, and they shape our our attitudes with with one another. So, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Would you turn with me to Luke chapter 22? And if you'd like to use the blue Bibles, they are uh, there under the seat in front of you. It's on page, I'm going to be on page 1101-1101. Luke chapter 22, and we're going to begin in Verse 35. And let me just briefly set the scene. We're going to talk about it more next week. Like That's one of the interesting things about doing this in Rewind is we walk. We start in rooms that we don't know how we got in yet. And so next week I'll explain to you more how we got into this room. But the setting for the, the, the verses that we're going to be reading is actually in the upper room um, shortly after they've taken what we, know, what we call the Last Supper. So Jesus and his, his disciples are all there and... Um, Jesus is having conversations with them. And in Luke chapter 22, in verse 35, and he, Jesus, said to them, the disciples, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what was written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, "Uh, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him and And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. We'll pause there. In the upper room, Jesus begins by a a question of reflection. Hey guys, we've been together for a long time. I've asked you to do some crazy things. Remember when I sent you out to go share the good news of the kingdom of heaven? Remember when I sent you and I told you don't take your wallets, don't pack your trunk, don't take a suitcase. Just take the clothes on your back and go out and share the good news. And and as you go into a new town, pray that God would bring you to a person of peace. And a, and as you f- come across this person, that person will likely invite you into their home and stay with them and eat what they feed you and take the provisions that they provide for you and then go to the next town. Like don't take anything with you. Don't don't de- don't depend on your own strategic planning. But just go. And they're like, he says, when I did that. Did you lack anything? No, Jesus, that was like the cool thing. Like every time we showed up in a town, there was somebody like right at the gate who really wanted to bring us in and wanted to hear what we had to say. And they fed us and they made sure that we had what we needed for our journey. Like it was awesome. Like we didn't lack anything. He's like, yeah. Remember how I know what I'm doing? Things are going to be different. but now there's a change. What's happening now is different. See, we typically will refer to this scene as the Last Supper. The disciples didn't know it was the Last Supper. Like, they didn't get an invitation in the mail that said, RSVP, uh, Last Supper. It just was... Passover for them. This was this was a, a regular annual celebration. It was a, a celebration that they got together with family and they shared a meal together, that they remembered stuff that God had done in the past. It's so a little bit like our Christmas, like it's a big holiday. And actually people would all travel home. They would all travel to Jerusalem at the same time to observe this holiday, have this meal together. And so they are coming together to have a regular party like they've always had, a regular holiday. And Jesus sits down with a meal and and it's a normal meal for the most part, but he just starts saying this weird stuff. He, 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 he washes their feet and, and he says, this wine and this bread that you have eaten every single year, like this actually is representative of me and of my blood and of my body and he's, he turns now, we'll talk about all of that more next week. Um, but right now he turns and says, remember when, when I sent you out and it seemed crazy? I told you not to take any money and you had everything you needed. Like things are going to be different from this meal on. Now, take your wallet and take a knapsack. Take provisions and let the one who has no sword, if you have no defense, sell your cloak and buy one. This is Jesus. What do you mean buy a sword? And this is a really, really interesting verse to me. There are some folks that are like, see, Jesus wanted you to have a concealed carry. He says it right here. And I, I get that, but I'm not sure that these are the verses to make that argument from. Um, one, because his, his, his focus is on fulfillment of the scriptures. He says in verse 37, for I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what was written about me is, has its fulfillment. So there's something about you guys need to have swords that was going to fulfill prophecy about Jesus himself. We read Isaiah 53 today, which was a prophecy that was written down hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus lived. But as we read through it, I hope that you heard the echoes of the things that took place in Jesus' life. That he was a man of sorrows and, and was despised by the people he came to save. And that he took our wounds and he used his wounds to heal us. And it says also that he was numbered among the transgressors. So there's something about the disciples having swords at this time that are going to, it's going to help Jesus have this prophecy fulfilled about him. And they said look, Lord, here's two swords. And he said to them, it's enough. All right, uh, so concealed carry, you really probably only need one. Um, but you've got you've got a group of 12, 13 guys, right? Dudes that are getting ready to leave. Remember, they come out and they go to the Mountain of Olives. So they're getting ready to leave the upper room. They're going to travel across town. They're going to go to a place and be quiet. So you've got a, a group of 12 13 men, I think Judas was gone, so we'll just say 12 men. 12 men walking across town. What kind of bandits are going to come at a group of 12 grown men? Like, if, if there is a group of bandits that's going to come against 12, 12 men walking through town, they're going to be a big group of bandits, right? And if it's a big enough group of bandits to take on a group of 12 men, what are two swords? going to be enough to do. So I'm inclined to think he's probably not talking about self-defense here because he comes into the garden and he, and, and he prays. So we're gonna, we'll come back to the sword issue, actually, in the next set of verses that we read. I'm going to set that aside for a moment and come back to it, because I want you to see this, this, what he's doing here. He goes to the Mount of Olives. This seems to have been a place where he regularly went to pray while he was in Jerusalem. This was a normal place. They just call it the place. So the disciples knew where we were going. This is where we go, and this is where we pray. And they say, hey, he says to them, pray that you do not enter into temptation. Does that, does that ring any bells for you this morning? Does that sound familiar to something else that Jesus has taught us? He says, hey, pray that you do not enter into temptation. And, and he withdrew from them, and he's praying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. He says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He prays to his Father, hey, I don't want to do this. If there's another way, if there's another way to save all of creation, without me having to drink the cup of your judgment down to the dregs. Let's do that. If there's any other way, like I'm, I'm up for that. But he says, "Not my will, but yours be done." Here on the night that he's praying and seeking the Lord before um, his his. his unjust trial before his crucifixion he prays our father in heaven hallowed be your name would your reputation be be above all else would you be the one that people look to and 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 have glory for hallowed be your name your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven And an angel shows up to him and strengthens him. I don't think it would be too far of a stretch to say, gives him what he needs for the day. Gives him his daily bread. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. His sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. There's something in the attitudes of the disciples' prayer that he left for us that doesn't mean that we're delivered from the anguish. God's leading us to hope and God's leading us to glory, but it's glory through anguish. As he prays, he's He's sweating. Now, sure, there's no air conditioning, but this is, this is in the middle of the night. Like, it's, it's cooler outside than normal, right? It's not just because it's hot. He, he's, he's fervent in his prayer. He knows what he's come to do. He knows for what he's headed, and he's praying. And he rose up from prayer and came to the disciples and found him sleeping. And you know what? If I'd have been there, I'd have been asleep, too. Because I don't pray very well at 4 a.m. I get sleepy. I'm tired. I'm weak. He said to them, why are you sleeping? Which I feel like there's an obvious answer. It's the middle of the night, Jesus. We just had Passover meal. Like, we just had big Christmas meal. Like, we're all, we're all full up. And now we're out here. And the, the night is cool. And it's just like, why am I sleeping? Of course I'm sleeping. Everybody sleeps after Christmas. Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. I I just think it's fascinating. And I hadn't noticed it before, but I just think it's fascinating that all of the elements of the, the, the model of prayer that Jesus left for us to follow in, he is following in when push comes to shove. The hardest night of his life, that's the prayer he's praying. And you're like, well, wait a second. He, he, missed, he missed a line. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Well, I'd just draw your attention to what we talked about a couple weeks ago in Luke chapter 23 and verse 34. As Jesus is being nailed to the cross, his words are, Father, forgive them. for They know not what they do. To the end, Jesus' prayer life is consistent. And it starts with it starts with that 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 crux of the question. I think it's the question that we have wrestled with since the garden. Whose will will win? Is it God's will or is it my will? Will we trust God's design? Jesus seems to be pretty familiar with it, and so, so I think he's got the advantage of you know great communication with God, and he says, look, I know what your plan is, God. I know what I'm getting ready to go to do. If there's any other way we can get around this, like, I'd, I'd rather do that. I see your design, God. I don't really like it. I'm not looking forward to it. but I trust it, and I trust you. Will we trust God's design when it costs us? When we say, uh, life's not going to be so much fun if I do it the God's way? Or, you know, what if that person doesn't like me as much? Or what if the relationship suffers if I continue to point them to Jesus? Like, will we trust God's design when it costs us something? Will we trust God's design when it blesses us so much that we can easily forget that it came from the hand of God? God, you, you, you showed me financial principles that meant that I had savings set aside and now we had come this day of trouble and now I have all the money I need. I am pretty great and I'm so smart for having saved up some money and have that set aside. Like, Bro, who told you to do that? Will we trust God's design? Will we give him glory for it when it costs us or when it blesses us in the day of hardship or in the day of glory? Because here's what I think is fascinating, and this is our big idea for the morning. Jesus entrusts himself to the Father, even through the depths of betrayal. With all of the things that are going on, all of the things that are getting ready to happen, Jesus turns and entrusts himself to the Father. There are times where I get so distracted by my life And I get so frustrated by circumstances that are happening in my life that I look at God and say, Why aren't you helping more? And instead of entrusting myself to Him, I instead entrust myself to solving the problems. But Jesus entrusts Himself to the Father through the depths of betrayal. Michael, what do you mean, betrayal? Let's continue reading. Luke chapter 22, beginning verse 47. While he was still speaking, while he was still telling the disciples, hey, wake up and pray. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd. And the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, uh, Lord, shall, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, No more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who have come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you... Day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. So they're in the garden. They're praying that God would not deliver them into temptation. And a crowd comes, led by one of the 12. See, Judas had gone off and conspired with the high priests and and decided that he would betray Jesus. Um, and I'm going to do something that I don't really like to do, but I think it's important to point out. I, actually, I, I think this is, I, I've been fascinated by it, and it was pointed out to me by uh, Pastor Mario at Good News Church down the road. Um, so typically when I'm talking about what Luke is describing, I'll stay with what Luke is describing. Um, the Bible, however, contains four different biographies about Jesus' life, and they all contain... Some contain more detail, some contain less detail, but there's something that Pastor Mario pointed out to me in in the book of Mark that I thought was absolutely fascinating. If you look at Mark chapter 14, and you don't have to turn there, but if you want to make a note of it, like just make a note. In Mark 14, at the beginning, in verses 1 and 2 of Mark 14, all of these people are coming in to Jerusalem. There's this big, what we call the triumphal entry, where all of the people are excited that Jesus is coming in. And the city is full of people. And in Mark 14, Mark tells us that the, the scribes and the Pharisees did not, like, they wanted to kill Jesus. But they had already decided at the beginning of the week that this was not the week to do anything because the city was so full. They said, look, like, he's so popular. There's so many people here. If we try to pull something right now, it'll be a nightmare. It's just going to blow back in our face. So we're, we're going to kill him, but it's not going to be at Passover. So in verses 1 and 2, that's what they say. But in Mark 14, later on, in verses 10 and 11, it says that Judas came and sought them out and said, I can give him to you. So they had decided that this was not the right time, but Judas was the instrument of God's timing. There's a ton of significance to Passover that I would love to spend some time unpacking with you some point, but we're not going to do it this morning. It's significant that Jesus died at the Passover celebration. And it wouldn't have happened if Judas hadn't sought out the high priests and told them, I'll take care of him. One of the 12, a guy who had walked with him, who had shared meals with him, a guy who had had his feet washed by Jesus even the hour, in the hours before he went to go and get the raiding party that would arrest him. Jesus entrusts himself to the Father through the depths of betrayal. Well, these 12 guys look at this party that's surrounding them with with torches and clubs and swords, and they're like, oh yeah, Jesus just told us that we needed swords, and we've got swords, so is this the time that we fight now, Jesus? And one of them pulls out the sword. It was Peter. They tell us later it was Peter. And Peter chops off the ear of one of the guys. Like he's go, he's going for it. Like I'm here to defend you, Jesus. Thick and thin, we're all through this. Like I'm, I'm gonna die for you, Jesus. And he, and he cuts off the high priest's ear. And Jesus says, Hey, hey, no! I told you to bring the swords. I didn't tell you to use them. And he picks up the ear and he kind of glues it back on. He heals the guy's ear. He says, That's not what. That's not what we're here for. My kingdom is not of this world. It's not won and defended by violence. The swords aren't for self-defense. The swords are for the appearance of needing an army to take me in. He says, look, I was numbered with the transgressors. I just need you to carry them with so it looks like we're like bad dudes. But everybody knows that we're harmless. Everybody knows that we don't put up a fight. Everybody knows the peace that I have been preaching throughout the city and throughout the country. Like, the swords are not for me to use. The swords are just for appearances. I need you to carry them so that they feel like they have to intimidate me. And he turns to the chief priest and he says, you come out with me like, like I'm a robber? Am I some kind of thief? you gotta, you got to bring the strong boys with their weapons? Like, is this? I, I was with you unguarded all week long. Walked around the temple. And, and remember, your little army here, like, those guys, they guard the temple. They were at the doors. You could have had me any time. And I came in, and I taught, and I left. You didn't bother me. Why are you doing this now, in the middle of the night, when I'm in the garden? Uh, By the way, praying. Holy men come to take Jesus from his knees before the Father to put him on his knees before them and hope that he will beg for his life. Jesus entrusts himself to the Father through the depths of betrayal. But we've also seen that Jesus shows his grace to the guilty by willingly suffering their violent execution. He goes with them. You can't kill God unless God says you can. He goes with them. Can we stand steadfast when we're falsely accused? Like they're straight up lying. They will continue to lie for the rest of, 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 of the trial. They'll continue to lie about Jesus and who he is and what he did and what it means. And they'll make up all kinds of charges and they'll call him all kinds of names. And Can we stand steadfast when we're falsely accused? Or does it just get under our skin it's so bad when people lie about us that, that we have to stoop to their level we have to defend ourselves. We have to, whatever it is. We read a couple of weeks ago from First Peter chapter 4 where Peter says, if you suffer for doing what's right, you're following in the footsteps of Jesus. If people lie about you, if people lie about your motives, if people lie about Whatever, when you're just doing right, when you're following Jesus, when you're, you're above board, you're doing everything you're, you know you're supposed to be doing, if people still choose to lie about you, God sees that. If you suffer for doing what's right, you're following in the steps of Jesus. So can we stand steadfast when we're falsely accused? because Jesus entrusts himself to the Father through the depths of betrayal. All right, so Judas, like, okay. like, We, we kind of know he was the, the, the secretary. He kept the money. Like, money corrupts. Like, he just probably was a greedy type of dude. He took a bribe, so like, yeah, I don't know. Maybe Judas wasn't very upstanding. Let's see what happens next. Luke 22, beginning in verse 40, 54, excuse me, Luke twenty two fifty four. Then they seized Jesus and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This, this man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly, this man was also with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, How he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you'll deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. So they take Jesus into the high priest's house. Um, And Roman houses are a a little bit unique. Um, If we recall, this is before the lovely invention of air conditioning and so typically when they built a house, they tried to let as much air move through the house as possible, and so the house was built around a courtyard, which was kind of open in the middle, and it wasn't uncommon for there to be an outer courtyard that was kind of like the front yard, the front door area, that um people could come in and out like if you were a, a really respected high, respected person people wanted to come and see you they'd come and stand in your front courtyard until you were ready to invite them in to do business in the back courtyard and so the idea or the way that this works is they bring jesus into the high priest's house and they probably take him to the back and they're having their deliberations, they're having their accusation, um, they're doing this trial for hours. But as Peter follows, he just kind of blends in with the crowd, and they come in, and they're just in the outer courtyard. And as he's warming himself by the fire, remember it was a cold night, people say, you're, you're with him, aren't you? No, I, I, no, no. Are, are you sure you're not with him? Like I, I think I, I, I think you're with him. No, I, I don't know what you're talking about. You have the same accent. You come from the same part of town. You're a Gal- you're from the same part of the country. Like you, you talk like a Galilean. Like surely you're with the other Galilean that's here. No, it's I don't know what you're talking about. Other other biographies will say that Jesus or that Peter cursed at the girls as they accused him of being associated with Jesus, I don't know the man. And at that time, Jesus in the back of the house looked through the courtyard and locked eyes with Peter in the outer courtyard. And Peter remembered, oh yeah, you told me I would deny you three times before the morning. Peter was one of Jesus' closest disciples. He was definitely in the top three. Anytime we talk about Jesus taking a smaller group than the twelve, he takes three with him and he takes Peter and James and John. Like Peter was in the top three of closest friends and closest disciples of Jesus. Like Judas was in the twelve, like that's close, but maybe maybe he wasn't as upstanding a character as, as the other people. Like Peter and, and Jesus were close. At the time of, of the rooster crowing, Peter and Judas are on the same level. Sure, Judas went and, and, and made sure that he got arrested, but Peter disassociated himself. He said, I d I don't belong to him. He is not mine. That's not my Lord. That's not my saviour. Like you he I have said before, I've confessed before that he's the Christ, but now I don't I don't even know the man. If we're familiar with uh, church history, we'll know that, that Judas killed himself and that Peter went on to continue his work in the church. But at this time, on this morning, as the sun rose on this day, those two men had the same condemnation on their shoulders. Both had betrayed their Lord, betrayed their friend, their rabbi, their teacher, their adopted father. That's the depths of betrayal that led Jesus to the trial and to the cross. I think that's one that we can get behind, we can see ourselves in. when I think about the cross and the anguish and the suffering and I think about the trial and the ridicule I've never experienced anything like that odds are pretty low that I'm going to be crucified in my lifetime literally and so I have trouble identifying with that but this a close friend betrayal abandonment Rejection, disassociation. I feel that. And I'm reminded that Jesus entrusts himself to the Father through the depths of betrayal. In his hours of betrayal and abandonment, Jesus did not say, God, why would you let this happen to me? You must not be good. You must not care. You must be some kind of big meanie. (laughs) Jesus says, Father, they're doing some wicked stuff. Forgive them. I entrust myself to you. So will we turn to Jesus, even in our failings? What do you think that first conversation with Peter was like after Jesus' resurrection? I've already jumped to one biography, so I'll, I'll jump to another one. John 21. Jesus writes about it and Jesus doesn't walk into the room wagging his finger at Peter saying I told you I told you you were going to deny me. You said you'd die with me and you wouldn't even you wouldn't even be associated with me on that night. I told you Who do you think you are to deny me after all I put you after all the times I fed you, all the times we walked. In, I healed your mom. What are you what are you what are you doing? That's that's not Jesus' game. John 21 after the resurrection, first conversation with Peter. Hey, Pete, do you love me? Yeah, yeah, Jesus, I do. Um, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord. Do you love me, Peter? Peter? three denials and three steps to reconciliation. Gentle, but firm. Will we turn to Jesus even in our failings? Because I'll tell you what, I beat myself up over the things that I failed Jesus for a lot more than Jesus beats me up. And there's times where I run away from him because I'm afraid about what he's going to say. And there's times where I'm concerned that I'm under condemnation and, and I did the wrong thing. And yeah, I did the wrong thing. And Jesus is going to correct me and he's going to tell me what's right. But he's still asking me to turn to him, to entrust myself to him even in my failings as Jesus entrusts himself to the Father through the depths of betrayal. Would you pray with me? God, we need you. There's, there's no two ways about it. We just do. You know we're fickle. You know our feelings get hurt really quickly. You know we get worked up over little, um, minute slights, people disrespecting us, and we want to stand up and fight back. And if it's on the Internet, then we can do it with relative anonymity. And, God, you know the depths of our selfishness and self-centeredness. And we look at you and we look at the ways that you were betrayed and we look at the ways that you kept your mouth shut and we look at the ways that you slowly and graciously restored friendships with people who had betrayed you. God, we look at that and go, that's God's stuff. I can't do that after what they did to me. but you're our Father in heaven, and so we ask that your name would be esteemed above every other name. We pray that your will would be done over our own. Would you give us what we need, the strength that we need for today, and would you forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors? Would you lead us not into temptation this week, but deliver us from evil? It's in your glorious name that we ask it. Amen.